0: He e
1: te o mai, mai, ki au Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Claire And today, we have some podcasts created by Centre for Science Communication Students at the University of Otago. First up is one created by Amanda Canine. Students are tasked with creating a podcast about a controversial issue, and Amanda focused on the topic of gene editing for pest control here in Aotearoa.
0: Imagine you're walking in the forest at dusk. As the evening chorus dies down, you hear a ruru in a nearby tree. The call and response of kiwi as they emerge for the night. And later, the distant boom of a male kākāpō, hoping to attract a mate. It's the year 2060, and after intensive and innovative predator control, New Zealand has managed to wipe out rats, stoats and possums. The forests are recovering, and Taonga species have been able to return to their former habitats. This is the dream of many in New Zealand, and in 2016, outgoing Prime Minister John Key announced the ambitious goal of making New Zealand predator-free by 2050. However, current pest control methods may not be enough to get us there. We need to develop new technology in order to reach the goal of predator eradication. I'm Amanda Canine, and today we're going to explore how gene editing and gene drive technology might be used in the war against invasive pests. But given New Zealand's GE-free stance, is there a path forward for this kind of technology? And if so, who gets to decide whether it's appropriate to use?
2: Gene editing is when we go into the genome and make a change in the DNA. That's Anna Clark, a PhD candidate and geneticist
0: at the University of Otago. In a pest control scenario, gene editing could be used to switch off reproductive genes, causing infertility for one sex. In normal circumstances, a gene has a 50% chance of being passed on to any offspring. But gene drive technology can ensure that the gene is passed on.
2: Anna explains. So, the key thing with the gene drive is that it biases the inheritance pattern of a particular gene. So, for example, if you were targeting a fertility gene that was key for the reproduction of a female rat, um, you would breed a bunch of males, um, release them into the wild. They would mate with wild females. And over time, these genes would become more frequent and result in a population collapse through the deficit of fertile females.
0: So over time,
2: that would just cause the rats to die out.
0: Yep, absolutely. I asked Anna whether current pest control technologies were adequate to reach eradication.
2: No, absolutely not. We need more tools. Um, So pretty much, yeah, we use traps and toxins to reduce pest populations right down to I don't know, we can get like 80%, 90%, but there's always going to be those remnant individuals. And those are the ones that just bounce back and we just can't seem to get rid of them Um, for a number of reasons. They might be avoiding the traps and baits and things. They might be resistant to the toxins. And so moving forward, if we really do want eradication scenarios, we really need to be focusing on how to get that last 10%. And so is that where gene drive would come in? Yeah, 100%. So, so once we've got the population right down to those remnant individuals that are really problematic to get with conventional pest control tools, um, we could release a bunch of gene drive individuals that drive through some genes that potentially reduce their reproductive capacity. Gene
0: drives may also offer other benefits. Ethically, they are non-lethal, And unlike toxins, there's no risk of suffering for affected individuals. In addition, there'd be no risk of harming off-target species like kia, livestock or dogs, which can be a concern with poisons. The technology could also drive the cost of pest control down. Maintaining traps is expensive and labour-intensive. Gene drives are self-propagating. Once they are released, they take care of themselves. It's really important to note that the potential use of gene editing for pest control is still a long way off. While gene drive technology has been used successfully in overseas trials in insects, there has been limited study done using gene drive in mammals. So while the technology is promising, a lot more work needs to be done to determine its feasibility and assess any risks. The regulations surrounding GMOs in New Zealand are among the strictest in the world, limiting the potential for research. In the early 2000s, concerns over the safety of genetically modified food and agriculture led to thousands of Kiwis taking to the streets to protest against GMOs.
3: We don't need no GMOs! Say no to GMOs! Have no GMOs! It's
0: going to ruin our environment, it's going to ruin our health going to ruin our economy. Why do it? Uh, we don't want GE free. We want to have a GE free New Zealand. There was a Royal Commission and GE Free New Zealand was born. Since then, all experiments involving genetic modification have been confined to the lab. But 20 years on, Anna is among a growing number of scientists and
2: experts calling for a more nuanced approach to regulation. Our current G laws, um, so it's illegal, To release GMOs into the environment in New Zealand and these laws are over 20 years old now and so they don't actually hold any water in light of current technology and current methods that we have for genome editing and so they definitely need to be revised to sort of catch up with the state of play. One issue is that current regulations lump all types of genetic modification
0: together For example, gene editing where any changes are from within the species' existing DNA is treated the same as modification that involves inserting genetic material from another species, say, inserting a gene from a capsicum
2: into a banana to increase fungal resistance. So I think it was last year, a couple of years ago, Australia deregulated a type of genome editing. So this is when you introduce a change to an organism that is already found in their species. So even though you've edited it in the lab, it's no different from a variation that could be found elsewhere in their population. So Australia has decided that that kind of change is not classified as a GMO and is acceptable, but New Zealand hasn't had these conversations yet. Um, And so I think it's about time that we, we have them.
0: With the release of GMOs banned in New Zealand... The path towards researching potential gene technologies is unclear.
2: These laws sort of limit research in New Zealand because it mainly limits funding. So because funding agencies can't be guaranteed that the technology would be used, um, there isn't much of an incentive to fund projects that are potentially going to go offshore. And it's also incredibly controversial, you know, Like, the public still has opinions about GMOs that are over 20 years old. And it's about time, you know, we encourage, I guess, an update on where things are at.
0: Adding to the complexity is that there are many potential applications of gene technology. So it may be that we continue to steer clear of genetically modified food and agriculture to preserve New Zealand's GMO-free brand, but be more open to using gene technology in other applications in medicine, or in the creation of bioplastics and biofuels, or indeed in areas like pest control.
2: I guess moving forward, we really need to have really strong communication initiatives and be having these conversations about what kind of applications we might be open um, to using in New Zealand when it relates to genome editing.
0: Imagining that gene drives were feasible, just because we can, doesn't mean we should. After all the research has been done, who gets to decide if the technology should be used?
2: So I don't think this is going to be a decision that scientists are going to make. We're just here to ask the questions. We're here to do the research um, and find the answers. I think at the end of the day, that decision will fall in the hands of mana whenua, the government and, of course, the general public. Like, what does the public want to see at the end of the day?
0: While consultation of mana whenua on conservation matters has fallen short in the past, there is recognition that gene drive technology cannot and should not go ahead without input and approval from Māori communities.
3: It's paramount we engage with mana whenua from the outset. Um, it's within our constitution. Uh, te Tiriti promised the Māori tino rangatiratanga over their uh, lands their possessions, um, their rights and interests over everything they considered a taonga. And then since the establishment of the treaty, uh, we haven't seen anything akin to that. Um, so as we're now moving towards being better treaty partners, both Te Ao Māori and the Crown, um, anything that impacts on those taonga needs to be discussed with the Crown partners.
0: That's Tame Malcolm, a biodiversity and pest control expert who also works to help Māori communities protect their environment. I spoke with Tame about possible Moldi views on the use of gene editing in pest control.
3: Moldi views range from you know anything that can support it right through to everything against it. Um, so it depends on the community you ask. They all have different views and perspectives. The trouble with the engagement at the moment is everyone's trying to lump Maori together, saying, "Hey, what do Maori think?" And as I mentioned, that all different views and values uh, perspectives. Every iwi has their own set view on this as well.
0: When it comes to having a conversation around the possibility of gene editing, it's important that Māori are leading the conversation themselves without being told what to think.
3: The reason the engagement is slightly flawed is because we lead in with those types of corridors, or the government leads in with those type of corridors. Hey, this technology has the potential to save your, your taonga species, and, and I feel like that's not really engagement, that's marketing. And... Māori communities are beyond, the, beyond that uh, phase of just being marketed to, being sold you know, blankets and muskets.
0: I asked Tame what engaging with Māori communities on the issue might look like.
3: In the very first instance, I think an independent Māori organisation um, going around and meeting with iwi and presenting all of the technology um, as it is. So no loaded conversation, no predetermined outcome just hey here's gene editing tools as it is uh, technology what are your thoughts Um, here's some technical experts that can talk to the technical space here's some legal experts that can talk to the legal space Um, here's some tohunga that can speak to the matauranga space Um, and then let iwi having all of that information um, with no desire to say make a decision now purely just hey here's the kōrero here's the Wanunga, up to you guys now Um, And then once Māori have had a few years, at least, to to understand the the conversation, um, or understand the the technology, then they can start making decisions on where to next, not decisions on the technology, whether we should adopt it or not, but hey, what's the next step in this conversation? Um, Knowing that each step along the process, Iwi can say right then and there, this technology is not for us. We we do not support. And having full faith that the government will say, okay, we won't unleash this on you.
0: The eradication of predators from New Zealand is an ambitious goal and while gene editing and gene drive may be at the top of the list for new technologies, it's clear that there are still a number of challenges to negotiate, both in terms of science and also in navigating the complex regulatory and social issues surrounding gene technology. But it's definitely worth exploring.
1: Thanks, Amanda. That was Is There a Future for Gene Editing and Pest Control by Amanda Canine, a Centre for Science Communication student at the University of Otago. Amanda spoke to Anna Clark and Tammy Malcolm. The podcast was produced and edited by Amanda Canine with additional sound engineering by William Saunders. Music used in the podcast was the track Careless Morning by Blue Dot Sessions. Next up is another podcast from a University of Otago Centre for Science Communication student. This one, called Fat Under the Surface, was created by Richard Marks and is narrated by fellow student Millie Gillard.
4: In the vast majority of people who struggle to lose weight, the biology is the main reason why they are overweight.
5: Kia my name's Millie, and that was a pretty bold statement, to say the least. Definitely not what most of us are used to hearing on the topic, but one that Dave Grattan, Professor of Neuroendocrinology at the University of Otago, believes in strongly. This genetic, biological approach to weight gain is not a new one, and does appear to have some very strong evidence and research behind it. So I sat down with Dave and we discussed the controversy. Is this just an excuse to be lazy, or are we not being taught the entire picture?
4: We think of obesity as a lifestyle disease, and it's referred to regularly as a lifestyle disease. And the same thing for type 2 diabetes. And the implication is that people could change their lifestyle, they may well avoid the condition. The difficult thing is that that's true. You can correct excess body weight by eating less and exercising more. And so it is possible to use lifestyle to treat the disorder. But the reality is that actually it's very hard to sustain those over a long period of time because your biological mechanisms override it. You know, you might be able to lose some weight and keep it off for a few months or even a few years, but over time the evidence is in most individuals that weight will creep back on to wherever is the normal set point for that individual. And that set point is biologically determined. And so while it is possible to sustain weight loss, your body will always be trying to uh, oppose that.
5: So in Dave's eyes, the current message is all right, but it's not the entire picture. While eating less and moving more will help you to lose weight in the short term, it isn't sustainable for everyone in the long term. He also introduced this idea of a biological set point, a zone that your body likes to stay within. To understand it, we can use one we're all familiar with, temperature. Imagine sitting in your lounge, the fire is crackling away. You've just got into the perfect position on the couch. You're warm, you're cosy. But then the wind gusts through a window and the temperature drops. We get up and close the window. We put more wood on the fire, make ourselves a warm drink, and we put on more layers. That cold threatens to move our body away from the temperature it's comfortable operating at and we've learned that a hot drink, a fireplace, closing the window and bundling up are all ways that we can warm ourselves. This is how the body can maintain a set point for a variable. So through research, it also appears that weight is maintained around a similar set point for individuals. So we have to go back to Dave and ask, why is the body so resistant to weight changes? I want to reduce my weight, so why would my body oppose it so much? And how is it even opposing it?
4: I think the way we have to think about body weight regulation is our body is essentially trying to make adjustments to keep us alive. And we perceive weight loss as a threat to our survival because that's a bad sign. It means you're not getting enough food to eat. And if you don't have enough food, you die. So our bodies are kind of genetically programmed to resist weight loss. And the key thing is that the degree of that opposition, if you like, the strength of those signals is going to be different for different individuals. So while one person might think, well, I, you know, it's easy for me to maintain this weight, another person at that weight will be feeling hungry, will be driven to eat, as well as the drive to eat. I think the, the key thing is we're conscious of the drive to eat, but actually the body has a whole lot of resources that it can use that we're unconscious about, how much energy it burns doing its day to day activity. This kind of surprising fact I think that really people are not aware of is that you know about 70% of the energy you spend in a day is just your body going about its business. The voluntary exercise, the, 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 the movement, the things you think of as, as energy expenditure, that accounts for about 20% of your total energy expenditure in a day. So that means your body has a huge capacity to adjust that other 70%. So if you go to the gym, then for the other 22 hours in the day, your body is conserving energy to make up for that stuff that you just burned off. And you're not aware of that. And you might be aware that you're a little bit hungry and you might even be able to resist having that reward chocolate bar that you give yourself after the gym. But even if you resist that, your body's still going to be conserving energy over the next few hours. And by the end of 24 hours or 48 hours, you know, your net energy expenditure will be balanced again by your biological mechanisms. So to actually lose weight, I think what people have to do is cut their caloric intake. So eat less food. And that's where it's hard because basically the brain treats hunger as an aversion. It feels bad to be hungry and you need to eat to remove that feeling. And, and, and the body has many mechanisms to do that. But it's been very clearly shown that hunger is an aversive signal. It feels bad. Your brain doesn't like it. It'll drive you to eat. So to resist that for long periods of time is hard. And in fact, the ev- again, the evidence shows that the only people who really succeed at that are people with time and money.
5: Okay, so weight loss is hard to maintain. And if you're not able to commit a huge amount of time and resources towards it, it's not a sustainable pursuit. It's not hard to imagine the average person working full time, balancing multiple responsibilities and then also having to juggle the constant hunger they feel from being in a caloric deficit. But why do we even feel hungry? What is our brain doing that is making us feel this way?
4: Hunger is an interesting thing to define. I mean, certainly there are hormones that come from your gut, particularly from the stomach that signal that you are hungry, that you need to consume food. Most of the time, I would say, in our culture, particularly Western culture, we don't really eat because we're hungry. We eat because of the habits that we've formed. But, you know, if you go without food for 24 hours or something, then you're genuinely hungry. And that'll be driven by the lack of hormones that are telling you you've got enough resources.
5: Dave has introduced two hormones here both of which make us feel hungry for different reasons. Let's explain that. To do that, we're going to need to talk about hormones. Now, hormones are essentially one of the many languages our body uses to communicate with itself. Right now, I'm using the spoken English language to convey a message to you. Likewise, hormones are also used to deliver messages around the body. In the case of leptin, it's coming from the fat tissue to the brain with the message, we have energy stored. Now, this is a constant release, so we're always telling our brain the state of our energy reserves, the fat. So this hormone tells our brain that we're full. How does it make us feel hungry? The way that the hormone can make us feel hungry, then, is by being absent. See, to the brain, the removal of a message is just as important as a message itself. Without a steady level of leptin, our brain perceives that we don't have enough energy, or that we soon won't, and to fix that, some neurons in the brain will activate and produce a feeling we're all too familiar with, hunger. I'd wager that nobody listening likes to feel hungry. The moment you feel it, you tend to try and find food, because you've learned that when you eat, the hunger goes away. Your brain likes to keep its energy needle at full, so the moment leptin levels drop, it makes food a higher priority for you. Now, issues can arise with these hormones, which can lead to obesity. And I think Dave puts it perfectly here.
4: What seems to happen in situations of obesity is that some individuals are just less responsive to the leptin. We have a condition that we refer to as leptin resistance, and that's really in comparison to like type 2 diabetes, where people are resistant to the actions of insulin, and therefore they have glucose problems. So leptin resistance and obesity is conceptually similar to that. But I, I think maybe resistance is the wrong term because they're still responding to their leptin. It's just that they're less sensitive than another person who might be lean. They're getting the same amount of leptin but a different response. And that's where the individual's biological makeup comes into into play. One individual will be responding to the hormone at a low level and another individual will respond at a higher level.
5: So the biology that controls our hunger cannot only fail in different individuals, but is also different between each of them in its severity. In this case, the brain is almost disconnected from the state of the body and always assumes a deficit of energy, which needs to be replenished by food. There's one argument, though, that we still haven't touched on yet. The back-in-my-day approach, which follows the idea that back in my day, the obesity epidemic, as we call it, didn't exist. The issue with this, and I'll borrow Dave's words here, is that it's true. Obesity wasn't such a common thing 50 years ago. So what has happened? Why has it become such a common thing now?
4: If you look back at pictures from the 1950s, everyone's skinny. So has our biology changed? Has our genetics changed in that amount of time? And the answer is clearly no. The key thing that has changed that has led to the obesity epidemic is the environment. So food is cheaper, relatively speaking. There's a lot more processed food that you can get. It's high in sugar, high in fat, which makes it really tasty and and filling, and, and it can be made relatively inexpensively. So people spend more time on computers and doing sedentary type of work rather than digging in the fields. And so the environment has changed, which reduces our energy expenditure and promotes the consumption of high, rich, calorie-rich food. But what we know is that the environment doesn't affect everyone the same. So under the same environment, one individual will still be maintaining a completely normal, healthy, lean body weight, whereas another individual will respond to that environment by putting on weight. And so genetics always works like this. It's an interaction between the environment and the biology And some people will be affected and others won't.
5: In Dave's explanation then, the obesity epidemic has always been possible in any time period due to the biology and genetics of individuals. Our environment then is what has allowed it to come to the forefront. To sum it up, genetics are putting people at risk in this obesogenic environment. Is there anything we as individuals can do then?
4: I think at an individual level there's there's multiple things that we can do. First and foremost, we need to stop blaming ourselves for being overweight. The biggest problem is that everyone assumes it's their own fault. They feel bad about it. They try to diet, they fail, they feel worse about it. That sort of combined feeling of guilt ends up in bad behaviors like, you know, people just binging on food or whatever. And so, you know, and so probably even more so everyone else needs to stop looking at a fat person and saying they need to change their lifestyle, it's their fault. That to me is where you know my view of the idea of a lifestyle disorder, I think that is counterproductive. You know, and that's been the prevailing message that we get from our healthcare community is that these are lifestyle disorders. I think the term actually creates a blame that is completely counterproductive. Once you recognise that your biology puts you at risk of a particular illness or condition, then you have to live, live your life differently. Even though you might know your friend has exactly the same lifestyle as you who doesn't have the problem, that's just bad luck. You know, biology, genetics has dealt you a hand and, and because of that, you have to live your life a little differently. And so if you realize that you're prone to weight gain, well, you have to watch your diet. You have to watch what you eat. You do have to get exercise. But what you have to remind yourself is, by doing that, you're not gonna suddenly lose 20 kgs. It's just that you're gonna be a bit more healthy at your slightly higher body weight. You're never gonna look like you know, a model on TV because biologically, you're different. You know, Just like you can't change your height, you, re- you really struggle to change your weight, but you can be healthier, and so you know, you need to make those changes.
5: And so closes the interview of Dave Grattan, aiming to help us understand the science behind the other side of the argument, so we can hopefully change our approach to an issue that has not been fixed by telling people to eat less and move more. That was the podcast
1: Fat Under the Surface, featuring Professor Dave Grattan from the Centre for Neuroendocrinology at the University of Otago. Interview, editing and production was by University of Otago Centre for Science Communication student Richard Marks, and narration was by Millie Gillard. Thanks for listening to this summer science special of Our Changing World. Our website is at rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter where we are at RNZ Science. Wishing you all the best for the holidays. I'm Claire Cannon, Ma Te
5: wa.